Um, when we went to Scotland, and just to kind of give you a journey picture here, you know, because for somebody from Ohatchee, it was a big trip. And we, we flew 4,000 miles from Atlanta to Edinburgh. We were in Edinburgh a few days. And then we rented a minivan and started exploring the country. And so we left out in a minivan driving on the wrong side of the road now. Remember that. So that was a challenge for the ladies in the car. And, um, and the roads are very narrow. So when you meet somebody and they have some very big trucks, they call lorries that, uh, they don't give you any room at all. But so we had, we drove, so we flew 4,000 miles and then we, we drove hundreds of miles, a total of almost a thousand, but I don't know how far we drove to get to this place I'm taking you to. Because we went up into the highlands, went down by Loch Ness, went over to the coast, the western coast of Scotland, which is country and very picturesque. Went to a place called Oban. And in Oban, then we got our minivan and got on a ferry and went on a seagoing ferry from Oban to an island called Mull. Mull is one of the western Hebrides islands of Scotland. Some of the most unusual and beautiful country I've ever seen in my life. It's just glorious. Landed on the east coast of the island and then drove about 40 miles on a one-lane road having to pull over for people to pass now, literally. There's one lane barely wide enough for the minivan. And so that was an experience. And then we get to the west end of the island. Then we get on another ferry. But this is a passenger-only ferry. Vehicles aren't allowed. And you go across just a mile to a little island called Iona. Iona is only about three miles long and one mile wide. The, uh, only the residents there, which is just a few hundred residents that live on the island, are allowed to have any vehicles at all. So we have to walk. And so we're exploring the island. And this island now is where Christianity first came to Scotland by historical records. Uh, a monk named Columba came from Ireland to Scotland, which is why we went that far to see this place, because that's where he landed. And there's an abbey there with some ruins that are over a thousand years old. You know, and we think things a few hundred years old or something here in this country. But, you know, everyone probably is familiar with Celtic crosses. You know, the Celtic cross, which is the symbol of the Presbyterian Church, is a cross with a circle around it. All those stone crosses uh, on that island date back over a thousand years. And uh, the abbey and the ruins, they're very interesting. But while we're standing around, they've, of course, always got shops to try to get some of your dollars. And uh, the Debbie and Abigail had gone into a little craft shop, which I dare not go in those places because it tends to speed things up if I don't. And so I'm waiting outside. And uh, <laughs> so I'm waiting outside. And my sister-in-law, I mean my daughter-in-law, is out there with me. And between my daughter-in-law and myself, I noticed a bird in the grass. And what struck me about it was that on the whole trip, I'd noticed all these animals. They're so different from what we have over here, and particularly birds. They had a lot of birds I'd never seen before. But this bird struck me, not because it was unusual, but because it was familiar. And it was familiar because it was a sparrow, just a plain old common sparrow like we have everywhere. And so that just really struck me. Um, and I know, y'all know I think weirdly, but it, the, what hit me then because of the study we've been in in Genesis on Sunday morning, it just put together to me a picture of God's faithfulness because, you know, the text in Matthew chapter 10 
where Jesus is teaching and he says, what? Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, basically? And yet what? Not one of them falls to the ground except the Father knows. And consider the hairs on your head. You know, they're all numbered. He knows all of them. Well, you know, the second illustration is not as amazing to me as it used to be because I can almost count the hairs on my head. But that first illustration really dawned on me about why Jesus used that. And I know I'm a slow learner, but it's the sparrow is everywhere. And I came back and looked up. They're on every continent. Sparrows are found on every continent except Antarctica. And they're always close to man. They habitate close to mankind. So why did Jesus use that? Because they're very, very, very common. And so something very, very, very common, seemingly worthless, God used as illustration for His providential care He has for us through His promises. The promises of God, how much more so are they toward us? You know, if, if a sparrow, think of how many thousands of sparrows die every day and fall to the ground all over the globe. And not one of them escapes the Father's notice. How much more so is He concerned with your cares, with my cares, with what's troubling us today, with what's on our hearts, with what's burdening us today as we come here to hear what He has to say to us. So, because we've been studying Genesis, it helped me to see a bigger picture. It just prompted me to put this together, which is the story of covenant. Now, if we go to the first slide... Please, the, 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 and covenant is just God's promise to us. That's all it is, is God's promise to us. Um, you know, it, in the study of Genesis, you know, we've been blazing a trail there since January of 2006, and we've covered almost 15 chapters. So we're moving fast, I know, but in the process, we've come to chapter 15, and that has one of the most important verses in all the Bible, which is chapter 15, verse 6, where it says that Abram believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Literally, it says that Abram stayed himself upon the Lord or stood firm upon the Lord or trusted the Lord. However you want to use it. That's the first use in the Bible of the Hebrew word, amon, that's translated believe. And he, God, reckoned or imputed or counted or declared it to Abram as righteousness. So here's the first use of this principle clearly stated. Of course, it's implied because everybody's saved the same way, right? From Adam to us, everyone's saved the same way. And that is justified through faith alone. And here it is clearly declared for the first time in Genesis 15. Well, and we know how important it is because of the New Testament. You know, Paul teaches on it in Romans uh, 4 in Galatians 3 and James teaches on it in James chapter 2 it's a tremendous verse it, and I'm sure this is a verse that was Paul's favorite verse Paul probably didn't go anywhere where he didn't say let me tell you what Hebrews 15:6 says so throughout Genesis and the whole Bible we see the power and the promise of the word of God God speaks and things appear from nothing right God speaks and his children have life God speaks and we have faith. God speaks. Abram believes. It's reckoned unto him as righteousness. So God speaks and he brings forth life. God speaks and he delivers truth. God speaks and he reveals his promises 
promises that are worthy to be believed because He is worthy of our trust. The promises are trustworthy because the promise giver is trustworthy. God is faithful, therefore His Word is faithful. Well, likewise, this principle of the promise of God's Word received through faith is central in our doctrine of sanctification, not just justification where we're declared or imputed righteousness, but in sanctification, our ongoing walk with the Lord. How do we grow? How do we walk with the Lord? As Carlton was teaching on this morning about renewing our mind in daily Bible study. Well, the promises of God, the Word of God, is spoken to us. We receive that in faith, and so we grow in faith and obedience. So, covenant, as I have up here, is just defined as the promises of God, especially for the purposes of this message. I want us to think of covenant as just promises of God. And you see, I put the title, The Pregnant Promises of God. I know this congregation knows a lot about pregnancy. And the point is, the promises of God are full of hope. They're full of anticipation. They're full of future coming promise future coming truth that we can count on today seeing things that aren't as if they are. Seeing things that are invisible as if they're visible. So, remember too that there's one unified covenant. We're we're talking about the covenant God made with Abram, but yet it's only part of one unified covenant throughout the Scripture. God only has one covenant with man, and that's the covenant of grace. Now, as a part of that, there are many progressive revelations of different parts of that covenant that we see, you know, as he deals one way in Eden, one way with Abram, one way with Noah, one way with Abram, one way with David, you know, but all those are the same. God keeps just progressively revealing his covenant through different people in different ways, but it's all by grace, through faith, in Christ, to the glory of God alone. So, we look back at a point in history here in Genesis 15 which proves to be of such tremendous importance that it changes the world. It changes the world then, changes the world for 2,000 years until Christ comes, and then for 2,000 years hence, it's been changed all based on this central doctrine that comes from God focusing in on one person. And think about this. How amazing is it that God focuses in on this one idol-worshiping heathen in the land of Ur and calls him forth... And in Genesis chapter 12, which is really the scope of the messages from Genesis 12 through 25 or 24, the whole part of Abraham, he focuses in and says, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who curses you I will curse. And in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. In completely sovereign grace, God comes to this undeserving idolater and calls him forth from his country to a land which he doesn't know, to a faith which he doesn't know, and to a people that will come from him that is the unfolding of his covenant with the nation of Israel. Now, I know you're probably thinking... Well, that's not that amazing. We all know about Abram. But think about it this way. Contrast it with what could have been. I mean, why didn't Christ just bring... I mean, why didn't God just send His Son Christ then? Why why did He shift to this one man, Abram, in Ur of the Chaldees 
and then go through 2,000 years of roller coaster with the Jews. You know, they'd sin, he'd judge them, they'd sin and repent, and then, uh, you know, God would deal in a different way, and on and on. The sin of man is repeated, the grace and the mercy of God is repeated, his justice is, is demonstrated. But really, God chose to work this way. Remember, he's sovereign, he sits in the heavens, he does what he pleases. And if this is not evidence of it, then I don't know what is. It's also evidence to me that the Bible has to be inspired of God. What man would come up with a story like this? God sovereignly moves through history, choosing a people, choosing a person, choosing to work in ways that don't match up with us, that don't seem to make sense. And he usually chooses the lesser over the stronger, the weaker over the stronger, uh, the lesser over the greater. And so here he goes to Abram for his glory. And he sets his favor on this one man beginning 2,000 years of redemptive history that results in bringing forth Abram's seed. The seed of Abram, Christ, the Redeemer for all the world. But so for today, I want us to think about, what does this have to do with me and you? So, so what? You're talking about ancient history. What does it have to do with me and you sitting here today in Jacksonville, Alabama? How does Abram's covenant, how does God's promise to Abram have immense importance to us today? Well, remember uh, Romans 15.4 says, Everything written previously was written for our instruction that by steadfastness or perseverance and by the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. So everything that's written here is written for us today to persevere and, and to have hope that we might have hope. So to do that, let's consider five questions. If we go to the next slide, five questions. I'll only spend about 30 minutes on each one. And I want you to think about these with me. And that is, first of all, what are the characteristics of God's promises? Secondly, what are the promises that were made to Abram? Three, what conditions, if there are any, are to be met that the promises had to be realized? Fourth, who are the heirs of these promises today, since Abram's gone? And fifth, what other promises of God do we have to consider as His children? And so, again, since this is not a simple exposition of one text, we have to think broadly about all the scriptures that relate to Abram in Genesis, but focusing in especially on chapter 15. So question number one. What are the characteristics of God's promises? I've got it up there. Number one, they're unilateral. That just means it's one party. It's not bilateral. You know, when you sit down and make a, a contract with somebody today, that's a bilateral agreement. These are unilateral. God makes the agreement. They're established by Him and Him alone. Secondly, they're irrevocable. That just means they're eternal, they're sure, they're ongoing. They never change. When God says something, you know, what did Jesus say about God's words? Heaven and earth may pass away, but my words never pass away. They're, they're more sure than Mount Everest. They're more sure than the sun. They're eternal. They're sure. They're ongoing. God's words, God's promises to His children are irrevocable. And third, they're grace-based. They're effected by the sovereign purposes and choices of God only. None of us deserve the promises that God's made toward us. 
None of us. Abram didn't. Abram didn't do anything to deserve the promise that and the covenant that God entered into with him. And contrast this in your mind quickly with a covenant of works. You know, and that's the second covenant, which is really the first covenant in the Bible, was the covenant of works which God presented to Adam and Eve. And, of course, we see how far that got. The covenant of works won't work because the workers are defective. God is perfect, so the only way a covenant can work is if the perfect one does the covenant. So, we depend upon the covenant giver, the covenant maker, to make His promises sure toward us. Alright? So, and think about these as we move through these other questions, how these are illustrated here, even in chapter 15 of Genesis. Alright, the next slide. Question 2. What were the promises made to Abram in this covenant? Alright, remember now the Abrahamic covenant is not a separate covenant. This is all part of God's progressive revelation of His covenant of grace with man that's the same from Adam to me. There is just This is just a segment of it. But just to simplify, let's divide these promises that God gave to Abram into categories. Um, and we can make it three categories. And they all alliterate very well. And that is that they're physical and among the physical, we have protection, posterity, and a place. And all right, what does that mean? All right, physically, God promised Abraham certain things. First of all, protection. Physically, He said that I will bless those who bless you, chapter 12, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in here in Genesis 15, 1, He says, don't fear, Abram, I'm a shield to you. So first of all, God promises Abram physical protection. He's going to protect him. Secondly, he promises them a physical posterity. That just means descendants. And they will be very numerous. That's why his name is going to change in chapter 17 from Abram, a father of many, to Abraham, a father of many nations or peoples. And in Genesis chapter 12, he says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will make your name great. Genesis 13, I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth. Genesis 15, see how it's getting bigger? He says, I will look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. So shall your descendants be. That's in verse 5 that Travis read. And he's also called a great and mighty nation in Genesis 18, 18. So there's physical protection, there's physical posterity, and then there's a physical place, a land. God promises Abram and his descendants a physical place for their own. Genesis 13, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, north and south and east and west. All the land you see, I will give to you. All right, that's certain limits. Think about that's as far as he could see when he traveled. But then, now in 15, he's expanding. He's saying, on that day, made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I will give this land from the river of Egypt, the Nile, the great river, to the river Euphrates. That's over in Iraq, Baghdad. So, you see how it's expanding. God's, it's not that He's changing the covenant. The covenant's always been the same. He's just expanding and revealing more to Abram as He's doing to us through His Scripture. So, and we also see, by the way, a side point here in chapter 15, that God graciously and mercifully assures Abram in his faith. In the first six verses of 15, God is assuring Abram of His covenant or His promises in His protection and His posterity. 
He's assuring, you know, Abram asked him, Oh Lord, what will you give me? Verse 2, since I'm childless. You know, is it supposed to be the heir of my household, a, a servant? And God says, No, this will not be your heir, but one will come forth from your own body. So God is assuring Abram. Abram questions God in sincere faith. He's not a skeptic. He's not impertinent or disrespectful toward God because we know that from God's response. God helps our faith. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. When we approach God with a believing heart, sincerely desiring to believe, God helps our faith along. And so how gracious is that? And we also see in the second part of the chapter, verses 7 through 21, how he's assuring him about the land. He assures God, uh, assures Abram in his faith, builds it up. And also notice in verses 7 to 21, that's the ritual. God cuts the covenant. He tells Abram what to do. And then God cuts the covenant himself with the animals. Notice here that in this cutting of the covenant, God is the promise initiator. God is the promised maker. And God is the promise keeper. Who's doing what? God initiates the promise. God gives the promise. God makes, uh, uh, makes the promise work, makes the covenant. He cuts the covenant. And then God keeps the covenant. So God is the real the real promise keeper. God is the real promise initiator. God is the real promise maker. God is the real promise keeper. Abram went to sleep, experienced the terror and darkness, symbolizing the evil and pain that often precedes the fulfillment of a covenant. Those of you in this room, you know, I mean, what promises of God have you seen acted out in your life? What struggles, what things have you been through where God has made Himself very real to you in difficulties, in trials, in health concerns, in the loss of loved ones. There's been great tragedy this week um, in Ohatchee with the Gallagher family. A tremendous tragedy. But as the message that was spoken at her funeral said, God wasn't caught by surprise. God always is true to His promises. God always knows what He's doing, even when it hurts. And so I think, and we can't get into too much detail here, but Abram in this terror and darkness, it just symbolizes the pain and the terror that often we go through before the fulfillment of a promise. Even the 400 years that they're going to go through in slavery before God's promise is fulfilled. Even the, the 2,000 years of struggle that Israel will go through before the ultimate promise of the seed of Abram is fulfilled. Even the struggle that Christ will go through before the promise is fulfilled in Him. Even the struggle on the cross that Christ will go through before the promise is fulfilled in the resurrection. So, I just think it's important that we ponder that. But then, and, and remember, delay doesn't mean denial. God's delays is not God's denials. That's not the same thing. His timetable is not ours. But anyway, we see God passing through these cut animals. Abram just does what he's told and then God takes over. God initiates the covenant. He's symbolized by the uh, smoking oven and the flaming torch. 
He cuts the covenant passing through the sacrificed animals. The traditional meal of these sacrificed animals was evidently consumed by God alone. So from start to finish, it's a promise and a work of God. It's monergistic. That word just means instead of synergistic, instead of we do our part, God does His part, God does it all. Even what He requires of us, God will do through us. Because all we can do of our own nature, of our own power, is sin. That's all we can do. That's our nature. That's the way we're born. That's the way we're inclined. So, except God do it, if it's good, if it's righteous, it can't be done. So, the second category of promises is spiritual. And that is that it's for Abram and his descendants. It's reckoned unto him as righteousness. Abram believes and God declares him righteous or justified. So isn't justification for Abram a very real spiritual gift that comes to him through the promise of God? I mean, how much more spiritual and important could it be than justification being declared righteous, having standing with a holy God, having your sins forgiven, having condemnation removed. Now, there is no condemnation in Abram, an idol worshiper, a sinner. And yet God removes his condemnation. But think about how full that is of promise. The spiritual dimension, how full is that of promise? Because if it's not just that God removes our guilt. It's not just that God forgives us. It's that God declares us righteous. God gives us righteous standing just as Christ is before the Father. So we are because we're in Christ. So it's pregnant with promise. This promise of this covenant of Abram that God gives him. And so God says in chapter 17, this is probably the most exciting way to consider it, is listen to this. God says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you, to be God to you. Think about that. God says to Abram, to be God to you. I will be your God. And to your descendants after you. So if God is your God, He works for you with all your all His power. You know, it's like, if your best friend on the school play yard is the biggest meaning the biggest, meanest bully in the school, and he's committed to you, then you're safe. How much more so, if God is for us, who can be against us? God has declared, God has promised to Abram and to us that he will be our God, that he will be for us. As implied in Genesis 24, 27, God will not forsake his steadfast love and faithfulness toward Abram for all his days. So for all the days of Abram, God is promising, I will not forsake you. My love and my steadfast promise will always be with you. I will be your God and I will be with you. And, and I, I would think back to great tragedy that any of you may have in your life. The greatest comfort, the greatest promise is that God is your God. That God is that you have Him. Not that you have deliverance from the problem, because you may not. You know, Abram didn't see his covenant promises fulfilled, but he went to his death satisfied. He was buried in peace 
because he knew that his covenant was sure based on who gave it to him. And as we'll see in a moment, he knew the covenant went on past this life. Because that's the point. It's a great promise, but that's not all. If God is your God and if God is in total control, then doesn't the covenant go past the grave? I mean, is God confined to this life? Jesus proved he has power over death. So, God is saying, even death cannot interrupt his promises. Think about this. In Jesus' day, the Sadducees, you know, the Sadducees, the Sadducees were a sect in Jesus' day that didn't believe in the resurrection. Uh, that's why they were sad, you see. And uh, nobody got that. So one day, they came, that's pretty bad, isn't it? But one day they came to Jesus and they questioned Him about the resurrection because they were trying to trap Him. And Jesus said, Matthew twenty two thirty one, As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So what's Jesus saying? Who's alive? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, they were dead, but Jesus is using them as an illustration of He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. So Abraham is alive. Abraham is in the bosom of the Father. So the point is that when the eternal, all-powerful Creator God, who is not bound by time, not bound by this life, is your God to you, death cannot destroy your relationship. It goes on. Whatever God promises you, you remember the previous slide? I said they were ongoing. They were sure. They're eternal. The promises of God go through the grave to the other side. So they are sure. So what a tremendous promise that is. And then the third part of that is that they're also spiritual but more universal. And that what it amounts to is all this blessing and promise is one day from Abraham going to spread to all the families of the earth. As I read, in Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In Abram, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So that when we come to Revelations, and every tongue and tribe is there. How? Fulfilling God's promise to Abram. In fact, in Romans it even says that Christ became a servant to fulfill the promises made to the fathers. I think it's Romans 15.8. Something like that. That So part of the reason that Christ came was to fulfill the promises made to the fathers. God's Word is that powerful. God is that committed to His Word. What He has said, He will do. What He's spoken will be. So God is expanding the promise more universally to include all the families of the earth. God's purpose is to bless the world with the blessings of Abram. He's to be a conduit, not a dead end. God's promises flow through Abram and expand to the rest of us so that he will be a blessing and that in him all the families of the earth will be blessed. So he's got a single individual he's focused in on, but that expands to a family, that expands to a tribe, that expands to tribes, that expands to a nation, that expands to nations. God is working. He's got a plan. He's got a purpose. His redemptive plan of history even reaches to us, as we'll see in just a minute. But third question, what conditions had to be met, if any, if these promises were to be realized? All right, now, here's one of these things 
that we come to in the Bible, it makes our head hurt. It's like, is God sovereign? Yes. Is man responsible? Yes. Well, which is it? Is God three? Yes. Is God one? Yes. Well, which is it? Was Jesus God? Yes. Was Jesus man? Yes. Well, which is it? Well, those are what we call, what, Carlton? True's intention. <laughs> they, those are true's intention. They seem contradictions, but they're paradoxes. All right. Well, are there conditions to be met? Yes. Are there conditions to be met? No. What did I say? I don't know, but let's try to understand it. All right. So from God's perspective, the promises are unconditional. Yet from Abram, there is a sense in which there were conditions. See, mistakenly, we assume because we only view man as autonomous and uh, that, you know, I'm the master of my own fate, the captain of my soul, whatever all that garbage says, that we think we're in control. So, and we think that if we say that there are conditions and we know we will fail, then the promises can't be irrevocable. They can't be um, steadfast, sure. But think about this. If Ezekiel thirty six twenty seven is true, and we know it is, God puts His Spirit in man and causes him to walk in His statutes and thus fulfill the conditions of the covenant. Right? So, or look at it another way, Philippians 2.13. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work. Right? So, what did I say earlier? If we do anything good, who's doing it? God. Our nature is to sin. You know, a fish only knows how to swim. He can't fly except God make him a bird. So, if we are to do righteous deeds, we must have righteousness. And God does that. So, that's exactly what we find here in Genesis. In chapter 12 and in chapter 15, the promises are made without any conditions. Y'all noticed that when Travis read it? There were no conditions. God just said, here's my promise. But, in chapter 22, and if you want to flip over there, you can look at verses 16. We see that the promise of the fulfillment of the promise is conditional upon Abram's obedience. Abram's just obeyed God in offering Isaac to him on the altar, and the angel of the Lord stops his hand and says, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because, notice that word, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will indeed bless you, and I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. And by your descendants shall all of the nations bless themselves because you have obeyed my voice. So the promises will be fulfilled because, verse 16, Abram obeyed God. Therefore, the fulfillment of the promises was conditional based upon Abram's faith and obedience. But again, it is God who is faithful to meet those conditions through Abram. So, are there conditions? No. From God's perspective, He's got it covered. From Abram's perspective, what's expected? Faith and obedience. But who's going to give it to Him? God. So, has He got to do it? No. He's got to let God do it through Him. Let God convince Him in faith. Let the Spirit prove the truth of His Word. And then let the Spirit motivate Him incline him and energize him to do the work that he's called to do. 
Same thing is seen in Genesis 18 where God says that He's chosen Abram that He may charge His children and household to keep the way of the Lord so that the Lord may bring to Abram what He's promised. So you see, the promises are conditional. God says that His household and His descendants must do what He's charged them to do. But yet God chooses and calls Abram in such a way that they are empowered to do what's required. So, that's the paradox, but that's the, that's the way it is. But be careful that we don't jump to a Roman position and make this into a covenant of works. That's not what I said. I said that God does it. They are both conditional and yet sure. And yet they are unconditional because God does it. Works are done in self-reliance to show ourselves meritorious. But yet this is grace by obedience that God graciously gives to Abram the inevitable outcome of Abram's faith is based on God's gracious promise. He believed God and he obeyed God and he offered his son out of gracious, out of the gracious obedience to God's promise. So it initiates with God. So it's one covenant and it's all of grace. Question four, who are the heirs? That's the big question. Who are the heirs of these promises made to Abram and his seed? Who are the beneficiaries of the blessings of Abram? In Genesis 17, 4, God says, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. This seems to say that the seed of Abram will not be restricted to the Jewish nation, right? He's going to father descendants who belong to many nations. This is the way that Genesis 12 is fulfilled, where he says, In you will all the families of the earth be blessed. In other words, it's the seed of Abram that will inherit his blessing. And the seed will include many nations. Therefore, many nations or many families or many peoples will be blessed through Abram. So who are the heirs of the promises? The, every tongue and tribe and family and nation on earth that are called according to his purpose. The children of God, that's who the beneficiaries. So, this becomes real clear when you go to the New Testament because Paul says in Romans 9, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel and not all are children of Abram just because they're his descendants. But the children of the promise are reckoned as descendants. So my question for you today is, are you a child of the promise? Are you a child of the promise? Are you in the seed of Abram? You know, uh, when John the Baptist was speaking to unrepentant Jews, he says, Do not say we have Abram as our father. And Jesus told them, If you were Abram's children, you would do what Abraham did. In other words, there are many Israelites, most Israelites, that are not children of the promise. Well, unfortunately, there are many Christians who are Christians in name, who are churchgoers, are church members in name who are not children of the promise. And that's the point. The Scripture beforehand, Galatians 3, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abram, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who have faith are blessed with faithful Abram. So, you today, are Abram's offspring. You're Abram's seed. You're heirs according to the promise. 
So who are these heirs of the precious and great promises made to Abram and to his seed? You are. I am. We are. And listen to this. Just think about the sweeping scope of this. To whom can it be said, your sins are forgiven. God is for you. God is your God. With all His power, goodness, and mercy, He will pursue you all your life. And you will rise from the dead. Your name will be great. Your assembly as the stars of the heavens. You will possess the gates of your enemies. And the land of Israel and all the earth will be your inheritance. God is your shield and your very great reward. And you will fill the new world with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the earth. To whom can this be said? To you. To me. That's yours. That's mine. That's our promise. And you know, in the bulletin, the scripture that I originally had put in there, that's where this is all pushing us, is verse 20 of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It's in the bulletin. For as many as may be the promises of God in Him, in God, in Christ, they are yes. Wherefore also by Him is our amen to the glory of God through us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul said, starting in verse 21, For all things are yours, whether the world or life or death or the present or the future, all the promises, all the promises are yours, for you are Christ, and Christ, the seed of Abram, Christ, is God's. So, in closing, the next slide. What other promises of God do we have as His children? Well, I don't have time to go through a lot of them, but you know what they are. He's promised to never leave you or forsake you, right? He's promised to uh, work all things together for good. He's promised you eternal life. He's promised you um, His presence, the peace and the comfort of His presence. I mean, you know, we could go on and on and on. Now, a lot of times, we make into promises things that aren't promises from the Bible, and especially that gets corrupted with TV evangelists. But the promises that you know to be sure, those are spoken by God. He is the initiator. He's the maker. He's the keeper of the promise. So they're sure. So my question to you today is, what are you facing? What are you dealing with? Um, because see, when I saw that sparrow on the ground and the, the sweeping scope of God's promise dealing with man from Adam all the way to me and focused in on the covenant of Abram as the key, the cornerstone of that redemptive history, it hit me that the things that I struggle with, how stupid, how silly that I am worried that God can't handle my silly problems. I mean, here is the creator of the universe, the one who spoke everything that there is into existence. And he's got time to keep up with every sparrow on earth. He's got time to keep up with every hair on every head on earth. And I think 
He doesn't care about me, who he died for. You know, did he die for a sparrow? Did he give himself for a sparrow? So, so my point to you today is, whatever you're dealing with, the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. Whatever it is. I don't know. You fill in the blank. But they are yes and amen in Jesus. Don't, don't doubt them. But trust them to the point that Abram did, who believed God to the point that he gave, as God would, gave his own son Isaac on the altar, as Hebrews tells us. In chapter 11, Hebrews tells us that he did it knowing that God was able to raise him from the dead. He so believed God's promise. He said, well, you know, you've promised me a posterity and a descendants, and yet you're telling me to sacrifice my son, so you evidently are going to raise him right back up. And I don't mean it was that simple and that easy for him. But I'm saying he had that faith in the promise giver. He had that faith in the promise keeper. You know, uh, I close with this illustration. Adoram Judson, you know, I had the quote up there before. Uh, that he gave Adoram Judson was a Baptist missionary to Burma and when he went to Burma he had no fruit uh, very little fruit he, he gave his life there he struggled there for 27 years in Burma he had two wives to die and why the third one married him she should have thought about that but anyway he had two wives to die on him in Burma lost several children Struggled the whole time. And then when England went to war with Burma, they imprisoned him, threw him in prison. And uh, the prison was terrible, terrible conditions. And he struggled with that. And while he was in prison, he got a letter. And um, that letter came from someone who asked him, what about, what, what's your prospect? He said, he said, what do you think the prospect for the future is? That's what he said. So what do you think the prospect for the future is? You know, referring to the heathen. Because you're in prison, you're suffering, you've had all this failure. After 10 years, I think he'd had 10 converts. And he said that in response to that, he said the outlook is as bright as the promises of God. Sitting in a jail cell, suffering with a fever. Adoram Judson said, the outlook is as bright as the promises of God. So, you know, as I say, sometimes there's delay, sometimes there's denial, sometimes we don't see the promises working out the way we want them to. But God's promises are sure. God's promises are faithful. God is faithful. And we can count on His Word to be accomplished in our lives. Oh, I tell you, when I think about that God has made a covenant with me, with me, it's, it's overwhelming, and it should be to us. When we think about God, the one true God, the God of the Bible has made a covenant with you. He's made a promise with you. And those promises are many it's all the promises He gave all the way through the Bible to Abram and everyone else. 
and they are yes and amen, how much greater do we stand here on the shoulders of those faithful giants and we look back and we have the real history of Christ. Christ is the yes and the amen to all those promises. So, maybe what we ought to do, you see, if you go back to that last slide, Cody, thank you for pulling that up, but uh, the last slide there, see, where it says, when we think of our commitment to God, we should first think of, our, of His commitment to us. So rather than thinking of what we can do to grit our teeth and be committed to God, just rest upon the faithful promise of His commitment to you. He is committed to you. And if God be for you, who be against you? If God has promised you, then what could fail? He's faithful and sure. His promises are yes and amen in Jesus. And um, in closing, I know Carlton's going to come up and we're going to sing one song. And I'm not going to sing this as a prelude, but I thought about the best summation of this is what's our response? Is that we believe, and another word for that is trust, and that we obey. And you know the song, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but what? But to trust and obey. So I'm just saying God's spoken. God has said what He meant to say. He didn't stutter, and it stands forever. And so, whether it's for justification, for salvation, or whether it's for sanctification, our ongoing walk and growing relationship with Him, I'm asking you today to think about where do you need to trust God? Where do you need to obey God? What promises has He given to you in your life or your situation that you need to believe and obey? If it's for salvation, then He's commanded you, believe and obey. If it's for growing in grace, He's commanded you, believe and obey. So that's my challenge to you today. We'll sing and then we'll pray.